Chapter 4 of The Life of the Spider. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spider by J. Henry Favreau. Translated by Alexander D. Matos. Chapter 4 The Narbonne Lycosa The Burrow Michelet has told us how, as a printer's apprentice in a cellar, he established amicable relations with a spider. At a certain hour of the day, a ray of sunlight would glint through the window of the gloomy workshop and light up the little compositor's case. Then, his eight-legged neighbor would come down from her web and take her share of the sunshine on the edge of the case. The boy did not interfere with her. He welcomed the trusting visitor as a friend and as a pleasant diversion from the long monotony. When we lack the society of our fellow men, we take refuge in that of animals, without always losing by the change. I do not, thank God, suffer from the melancholy of a cellar. My solitude is gay with light and verdure. I attend, whenever I please, the field's high festival, the thrush's concert, the cricket's symphony. And yet my friendly commerce with the spider is marked by an even greater devotion than the young typesetters. I admit her to the intimacy of my study. I make room for her among my books. I set her in the sun on my window ledge. I visit her assiduously at her home in the country. The object of our relations is not to create a means of escape from the petty worries of life, pinpricks whereof I have my share like other men, a very large share indeed. I propose to submit to the spider a host of questions whereto, at times, she condescends to reply. To what fair problems does not the habit of frequenting her give rise? To set them forth worthily, the marvellous art which the little printer was to acquire were not too much. One needs the pen of a Michelet, and I have but a rough, blunt pencil. Let us try, nevertheless, even when poorly clad, truth is still beautiful. I will, therefore, once more take up the story of the spider's instinct, a story of which the preceding chapters have given but a very rough idea. Since I wrote those earlier essays, my field of observation has been greatly extended. My notes have been enriched by new and most remarkable facts. It is right that I should employ them for the purpose of a more detailed biography. 
the exigencies of order and clearness expose me it is true to occasional repetitions this is inevitable when one has to marshal in an harmonious whole a thousand items culled from day to day often unexpectedly and bearing no relation one to the other the observer is not the master of his time opportunity leads him and by unsuspected ways a certain question suggested by an earlier fact finds no reply until many years after its scope moreover is amplified and completed with views collected on the road in a work therefore of this fragmentary character repetitions necessary for the due coordination of ideas are inevitable i shall be as sparing of them as i can let us once more introduce our old friends the epiera and the lycosa who are the most important spiders in my district the narbonne lycosa or black-bellied tarantula chooses her domicile in the waste pebbly lands beloved of the time her dwelling a fortress rather than a villa is a burrow about nine inches deep and as wide as the neck of a claret bottle the direction is perpendicular in so far as obstacles frequent in a soil of this kind permit a bit of gravel can be extracted and hoisted outside but a flint is an immovable boulder which the spider avoids by giving a bend to her gallery if more such are met with the residence becomes a winding cave with stone walls with lobbies communicating by means of sharp passages this lack of plan has no attendant drawbacks so well does the owner from long habit know every corner and story of her mansion if any interesting buzz occur overhead the lycosa climbs up from her rugged manor with the same speed as from a vertical shaft perhaps she even finds the windings and turnings an advantage when she has to drag into her den a prey that happens to defend itself as a rule the end of the burrow widens into a side chamber a launch or resting place where the spider meditates at length and is content to lead a life of quiet when her belly is full a silk coating but a scanty one for the lycosa has not the wealth of silk possessed by the weaving spiders lines the walls of the tube and keeps the loose earth from falling this plaster which cements the incohesive and smooths the rugged parts is reserved more particularly for the top of the gallery near the mouth here in daytime 
If things be peaceful all around, the Lycosa stations herself either to enjoy the warmth of the sun, her great delight, or to lie in wait for game. The threads of the silk lining afford a firm hold to the claws on every side, whether the object be to sit motionless for hours, reveling in the light and heat, or to pounce upon the passing prey. Around the orifice of the burrow rises, to a greater or lesser height, a circular parapet formed of tiny pebbles, twigs, and straps borrowed from the dry leaves of the neighboring grasses, all more or less dexterously tied together and cemented with silk. This work of rustic architecture is never missing, even though it be no more than a mere pad. When she reaches maturity and is once settled, the Lycosa becomes eminently domesticated. I have been living in close communion with her for the last three years. I have installed her in large earthen pans on the window sills of my study, and I have her daily under my eyes. Well, it is very rarely that I happen on her outside, a few inches from her hole back to which she bolts at the least alarm. We may take it, then, that when not in captivity, the Lycosa does not go far afield to gather the wherewithal to build her parapet, and that she makes shift with what she finds upon her threshold. In these conditions, the building stones are soon exhausted and the masonry ceases for lack of materials. The wish came over me to see what dimensions the circular edifice would assume if the spider were given an unlimited supply. With captives, to whom I myself act as purveyor, the thing is easy enough. Were it only with a view to helping whoso may one day care to continue these relations with the big spider of the wastelands, let me describe how my subjects were housed. A good-sized earthenware pan, some nine inches deep, is filled with a red clay earth rich in pebbles, similar, in short, to that of the places haunted by the Lycosa, properly moistened into a paste. The artificial soil is heaped, layer by layer, around a central reed of a bore equal to that of the animal's natural burrow. When the receptacle is filled to the top, I withdraw the reed, which leaves a yawning perpendicular shaft. I thus obtain the abode which shall replace that of the fields. To find a hermit to inhabit it is merely the matter of a walk in the neighborhood. When removed from her own dwelling, which is turned topsy-turvy by my travel and placed in possession of the den produced by my art, the Lycosa at once disappears into that den. She does not come out again, seeks nothing better elsewhere. A large wire gauze cover 
rests on the soil in the pan and prevents escape. In any case, the watch in this respect makes no demands upon my diligence. The prisoner is satisfied with her new abode and manifests no regret for her natural burrow. There is no attempt at flight on her part. Let me not omit to add that each pan must receive not more than one inhabitant. The Lycosa is very intolerant. To her, a neighbor is fair game, to be eaten without scruple when one has might on one's side. Time was when, unaware of this fierce intolerance which is more savage still, at breeding time I saw hideous orgies perpetrated in my overstocked cages. I shall have occasion to describe those tragedies later. Let us meanwhile consider the isolated Lycosi. They do not touch up the dwelling which I have moulded for them with a bit of a reed, at most now and again perhaps with the object of forming a lounge or bedroom at the bottom. They fling out a few loads of rubbish, but all, little by little, build the curb that is to edge them out. I have given them plenty of first-rate materials, far superior to those which they use when left to their own resources. These consist, first, for the foundations of little smooth stones, some of which are as large as an almond. With this road metal are mingled short stripes of raffia or palm fibre flexible ribbons, easily bent. These stand for the spider's usual basket-work, consisting of slender stalks and dry blades of grass. Lastly, by way of an unprecedented treasure, never yet employed by a lycosa, I place at my captive's disposal some thick threads of wool cut into inch lengths. As I wish at the same time to find out whether my animals with the magnificent lenses of their eyes are able to distinguish colours and prefer one colour to the other, I mix up bits of wool of different hues. They are red, green, white and yellow pieces. If the spider have any preference, she can choose where she pleases. The Lycosa always works at night, a regrettable circumstance which does not allow me to follow the worker's methods. I see the result and that is all. Were I to visit the building yard by the light of a lantern, I should be no wiser. The animal, which is very shy, would at once dive into her lair and I should have lost my sleep for nothing. Furthermore, she is not a very diligent labourer. She likes to take her time. Two or three bits of wool or raffia placed in position represent a whole night's work. And to this slowness, we must add long spells of utter idleness. 
two months passed and the result of my liberality surpasses my expectations possessing more windfalls than they know what to do with all picked up in their immediate neighbourhood my lycose have built themselves donjon keeps the like of which their race has not yet known around the orifice on a slightly sloping bank small flat smooth stones have been laid to form a broken flagged pavement the larger stones which are cyclopean blocks compared with the size of the animal that has shifted them are employed as abundantly as the others on this rock work stands the dungeon it is an interlacing of raffia and bits of wool picked up at random without distinction of shade red and white green and yellow are mixed without any attempt at order the lycosa is indifferent to the joys of colour the ultimate result is a sort of muff a couple of inches high bands of silk supplied by the spinnerets unite the pieces so that the whole resembles a coarse fabric without being absolutely faultless for there are always awkward pieces on the outside which the worker could not handle the gaudy building is not devoid of merit the bird lining its nest would do no better whoso sees the curious many-coloured productions in my pants take them for an outcome of my industry contrived with a view to some experimental mischief and his surprise is great when i confess who the real author is no one would ever believe the spider capable of constructing such a monument it goes without saying that in a state of liberty on our barren wastelands the lycosa does not indulge in such sumptuous architecture i have given the reason she is too great a stay-at-home to go in search of materials and she makes use of the limited resources which she finds round her bits of earth small chips of stone a few twigs a few withered grasses that is all or nearly all therefore the work is generally quite modest and reduced to a parapet that hardly attracts attention my captives teach us that when materials are plentiful especially textile materials that remove all fears of landslip the lycosa delights in tall turrets she understands the art of dungeon building and puts it into practice as often as she possesses the means this art is akin to another from which it is apparently derived if the sun be fierce or if rain threaten the lycosa closes the entrance to her dwelling with a silken trellis work wherein she embeds different matters often the remnants of victim which she has devoured the ancient gale nailed the heads of his vanquished enemies to the door of his hut in the same way the fierce spider sticks the skulls of her prey into the lid of her cave 
these lumps look very well on the auger's roof but we must be careful not to mistake them for warlike trophies the animal knows nothing of our barbarous bravado everything at the threshold of the burrow is used indiscriminately fragments of locust vegetable remains and specially particles of earth a dragonfly's head baked by the sun is as good as a bit of gravel and no better and so with silk and all sorts of tiny materials the lycosa builds a lidded cap to the entrance of her home i'm not well acquainted with the reasons that prompt her to barricade herself indoors particularly as the seclusion is only temporary and varies greatly in duration i obtain precise details from a tribe of lycosae wherewith the enclosure as will be seen later happens to be thronged in consequence of my investigations into the dispersal of the family at the time of the tropical august heat i see my lycosae now this patch now that building at the entrance to the burrow a convex ceiling which is difficult to distinguish from the surrounding soil can it be to protect themselves from the too vivid light this is doubtful for a few days later though the power of the sun remained the same the roof is broken open and the spider reappears at her door where she revels in the torrid heat of the dog days later when october comes if it be rainy weather she retires once more under a roof as though she were guarding herself against the damp let us not be too positive of anything however often when it is raining hard the spider bursts her ceiling and leaves her house open to the skies perhaps the lid is only put on for serious domestic events notably for the laying i do in fact perceive young lycosae who shut themselves in before they have attained the dignity of motherhood and who reappear some time later with the bag containing the eggs hung to their stern the inference that they close the door with the object of securing greater quiet while spinning the maternal cocoon would not be in keeping with the unconcern displayed by the majority i find some who lay their eggs in an open burrow i came upon some who weave their cocoon and cram it with eggs in the open air before they even own a residence in short i do not succeed in fathoming the reasons that cause the burrow to be closed no matter what the weather hot or cold wet or dry the fact remains that the lid is broken and repaired repeatedly sometimes on the same day in spite of the early casing the silk roof gives it the requisite pliancy to cleave when pushed by the anchorite and rip open without falling into ruins 
swept back to the circumference of the mouth and increased by the wreckage of further ceilings it becomes a parapet which the lycosa raises by degrees in her long movements of leisure the bastion which surmounts the burrow therefore takes its origin from the temporary lid the turret derives from the split ceiling what is the purpose of this turret my pants will tell us that an enthusiastic votary of the chase so long as she is not permanently fixed the lycosa once she has set up house prefers to lie in ambush and wait for the quarry every day when the heat is greatest i see my captives come up slowly from underground and leap upon the battlements of their woolly castle keep they are then really magnificent in their stately gravity with their swelling belly contained within the aperture their head outside their glassy eyes staring their legs gathered for a spring for hours and hours they wait motionless bathing voluptuously in the sun should a tidbit to her liking happen to pass forthwith the watcher darts from her tall tower swift as an arrow from the bow with a dagger thrust in the neck she stabs the jugular of the locust dragonfly or other prey whereof i am the purveyor and she as quickly scales the dungeon and retires with her capture the performance is a wonderful exhibition of skill and speed very seldom is a quarry missed provided that it pass at a convenient distance within the range of the huntress's bound but if the prey be at some distance for instance at the wire of the cage the lycosa takes no notice of it scorning to go in pursuit she allows it to roam at will she never strikes except when sure of her stroke she achieves this by means of her tower hiding behind the wall she sees the stranger advancing keeps her eyes on him and suddenly pounces when he comes within reach this abrupt tactics make the thing a certainty though he were winged and swift of flight the unwary one who approaches the ambush is lost this presumes it is true an exemplary patience on the lycosa's part for the burrow has not that can serve to entice victims at best the ledge provided by the turret may at rare intervals tempt some weary wayfarer to use it as a resting place but if the quarry do not come to-day it is sure to come to-morrow the next day or later for the locusts hop innumerable in the wasteland nor are they always able to regulate their leaps some day or other chance is bound to bring one of them within the purlieus of the burrow this is the moment to spring upon the pilgrim from the ramparts 
Until then, we maintain a stoical vigilance. We shall dine when we can, but we shall end by dining. The Lycosa, therefore, well aware of these lingering eventualities, waits and is not unduly distressed by a prolonged abstinence. She has an accommodating stomach, which is satisfied to be gorged today and to remain empty afterwards for goodness knows how long. I have sometimes neglected my catering duties for weeks at a time, and my boarders have been none the worse for it. After a more or less protracted fast, they do not pine away, but are smitten with a wolf-like hunger. All these ravenous eaters are alike. They guzzle to excess today in anticipation of tomorrow's dearth. In her youth, before she has a burrow, the Lycosa earns her living in another manner. Clad in grey like her elders, but without black velvet apron, which she receives on attaining the marriageable age, she roams among the scrubby grass. This is true hunting. Should a suitable quarry heave in sight, the spider pursues it, drives it from its shelters, follows it hotfoot. The fugitive gains the heights, makes as though to fly away. He has not the time. With an upward leap, the Lycosa grabs him before he can rise. I am charmed with the agility wherewith my yearling boarders seize the flies which I provide for them. In vain does the fly take refuge a couple of inches up on some blade of grass. With a sudden spring into the air, the spider pounces upon the prey. No cat is quicker in catching her mouse. But these are feats of youth, not handicapped by obesity. Later, when a heavy paunch, dilated with eggs and silk, has to be trailed along, these gymnastic performances become impracticable. The Lycosa then digs herself a settled abode, a hunting box, and sits in her watchtower on the lookout for game. When and how is the bury obtained wherein the Lycosa, once a vagrant, now a stay-at-home, is to spend the remainder of her long life? We are in autumn, the weather is already turning cool. This is how the field crickets set to work. As long as the days are fine and nights not too cold, the future chorister of spring rambles over the fallows, careless of a local inhabitation. At critical moments, the cover of a dead leaf provides him with a temporary shelter. In the end, the burrow, the permanent dwelling, is dug as the inclement season draws nigh. The Lycosa shares the cricket's views. Like him, she finds a thousand pleasures in the vagabond life. With September comes the nuptial badge, the black velvet bib. The spiders meet at night by the soft moonlight, they romp together. They eat the beloved 
shortly after the wedding by day they scour the country they track the game on the short pile grassy carpet they take in their fills of the joys of sun that is much better than solitary meditation at the bottom of a well and so it is not rare to see young mothers dragging their bag of eggs or even already carrying their family and as yet without a home in october it is time to settle down we then in fact find two sorts of burrows which differ in diameter the larger bottleneck burrows belong to the old matrons who have owned their house for two years at least the smaller of the width of a thick lead pencil contain the young mothers born that year by dint of long and leisurely alterations the novices earth will increase in depth as well as in diameter and become roomy abodes similar to those of grandmothers in both we shall find the owner and her family the later sometimes already hatched and sometimes still enclosed in satin valet seeing no digging tools such as the excavation of the dwelling seemed to me to require i wondered whether the lycosa might not avail herself of some chance gallery the work of a cicada or earthworm this ready-made tunnel thought i must shorten the labours of the spider who appeared to be so badly off for tools she would only have to enlarge it and put it in order i was wrong the burrow is excavated from start to finish by her unaided labour then where are the digging implements we think of the legs of the claws we think of them but reflection tells us that tools such as these would not do they are too long and too difficult to wield in a confined space what is required is the miner's short-handled pick wherewith to drive hard to insert to lever and to extract what is required is the sharp point that enters the earth and crumbles it into fragments there remain the lycosa's fangs delicate weapons which we at first hesitate to associate with such work so illogical does it seem to dig a pit with surgeon's scalpels the fangs are a pair of sharp curved points which when at rest crook like a finger and take shelter between two strong pillars the cat sheaths her claws under the velvet of the paw to preserve their edge and sharpness in the same way the lycosa protects her poisoned daggers by folding them within the case of two powerful columns which come plumb on the surface and contain the muscles that work them well this surgical outfit intended for stabbing the jugular artery of the prey suddenly becomes a pickaxe and does rough navy's work to witness the underground digging is impossible but we can at least with the exercise of a little patience see the rubbish carted away 
if I watch my captives without tiring at a very early hour, for the work takes place mostly at night and at long intervals, in the end I catch them coming up with a load. Contrary to what I expected, the legs take no part in the carting. It is the mouth that acts as the barrow. A tiny ball of earth is held between the fangs and is supported by the palpi, or feelers, which are little arms employed in the service of the mouth parts. The lycosa descends cautiously from her turret, goes to some distance to get rid of her burden, and quickly dives down again to bring up more. We have seen enough. We know that the Lycosa's fangs, those lethal weapons, are not afraid to bite into clay and gravel. They need the excavated rubbish into pellets, take up the mass of earth and carry it outside. The rest follows naturally. It is the fangs that dig, delve and extract. How finely tempered they must be! not to be blunted by this well-sinker's work, and to do duty presently in the surgical operation of stabbing the neck. I have said that the repairs and extensions of the burrow are made at long intervals. From time to time, the circular parapet receives additions and becomes a little higher. Less frequently still, the dwelling is enlarged and deepened. As a rule, the mansion remains as it was for a whole season. Towards the end of winter, in March, more than at any other period, the Lycosa seems to wish to give herself a little more space. This is the moment to subject her to certain tests. We know that the field cricket, when removed from his burrow, and caged under conditions that would allow him to dig himself a new home should the fit seize him prefers to tramp from one casual shelter to another or rather abandons every idea of creating a permanent residence there is a short season whereat the instinct for building a subterranean gallery is imperatively roused when this season is past, the excavating artist, if accidentally deprived of his abode, becomes a wandering bohemian, careless of a lodging. He has forgotten his talents and he sleeps out. That the bird, the nest builder, should neglect its art when it has no brood to care for is perfectly logical. It builds for its family, not for itself. But what shall we say of the cricket who is exposed to a thousand mishaps when away from home? The protection of a roof would be of great use to him, and the giddy pate does not give it a thought, though he is very strong and more capable than ever of digging with his powerful jaws. What reason can we allege for this neglect? None unless it be that the season of strenuous burrowing is past. The instincts have a calendar of their own. At the given hour, suddenly they awaken, as suddenly afterwards they fall asleep. 
The ingenious become incompetent when the prescribed period is ended. On a subject of this kind, we can consult the spider of the waste lands. I catch an old lycosa in the fields and house her that same day under wire in a burrow where I have prepared a soil to her liking. If, by my contrivances and with a bit of reed, I have previously moulded a burrow roughly representing the one from which I took her, the spider enters it forthwith and seems pleased with her new residence. The product of my art is accepted as her lawful property and undergoes hardly any alterations. In course of time, a bastion is erected around the orifice, the top of the gallery is cemented with silk, and that is all. In this establishment of my building, the animal's behavior remains what it would be under natural conditions. But place the lycosa on the surface of the ground without first shaping a burrow. What will the homeless spider do? Dig herself a dwelling, one would think. She has the strength to do so. She is in the prime of life. Besides, the soil is similar to that whence I ousted her and suits the operation perfectly. We therefore expect to see the spider settled before long in a shaft of her own construction. We are disappointed. Weeks pass and not an effort is made, not one. Demoralized by the absence of an ambush, the lycosa hardly vouchsafes a glance at the game which I serve up. The crickets pass within her reach in vain. Most often she scorns them. She slowly wastes away with fasting and boredom. At length she dies. Take up your miner's trade again, poor fool. Make yourself a home since you know how to and life will be sweet to you for many a long day yet the weather is fine and victuals plentiful dig delve go underground where safety lies like an idiot you refrain and you perish why because the craft which you were wont to ply is forgotten because the days of patient digging are past and your poor brain is unable to work back. To do a second time what has been done already is beyond your wit. For all your meditative air, you cannot solve the problem of how to reconstruct that which is vanished and gone. Let us now see what we can do with younger lycose who are at the burrowing stage. I dig out five or six at the end of February. They are half the size of the old ones. Their burrows are equal in diameter to my little finger. Rubbish, quite fresh spread around the pit, bears witness to the recent date of the excavations. Relegated to their wire cages, these young lycose behave differently according as the soil placed at their disposal is or is not already provided with a burrow made by me. A burrow is hardly the word. I give them but the nucleus of a shaft about an inch deep to lure them on. When in the position of this rudimentary lair, the spider does not hesitate to pursue the work which I have interrupted in the fields. 
At night she digs with a will. I can see this by the heap of rubbish flung aside. She at last obtains a house to suit her, a house surmounted by the usual turret. The others, on the contrary, those spiders for whom the thrust of my pencil has not contrived an entrance hall representing, to a certain extent, the natural gallery whence I dislodged them, absolutely refuse to work, and they die, notwithstanding the abundance of provisions. The first pursue the season's task. They were digging when I caught them, and, carried away by the enthusiasm of their activity, they go on digging inside my cages. Taken in by my decoy shaft, they deepen the imprint of the pencil as though they were deepening their real vestibule. They do not begin their labors over again. They continue them. The second, not having this inducement, this semblance of a burrow mistaken for their own work, forsake the idea of digging and allow themselves to die, because they would have to travel back along the chain of actions and to resume the big strokes of the start. To begin all over again requires reflection, a quality wherewith they are not endowed. To the insect, and we have seen this in many earlier cases, what is done is done and cannot be taken up again. The hands of the watch do not move backwards. The insect behaves in much the same way. Its activity urges it in one direction, ever forwards, without allowing it to retrace its steps, even when an accident makes this necessary. When the mason bees and the others taught us a while, the Lycosa now confirms in her manner, incapable of taking fresh pains to build herself a second dwelling, when the first is done for, she'll go on the tramp, she'll break into a neighbor's house, she'll run the risk of being eaten, should she not prove the stronger, but she will never think of making herself a home by starting afresh. What a strange intellect is that of the animal, a mixture of mechanical routine and subtle brain power. Does it contain gleams that contrive, wishes that pursue a definite object? Following in the wake of so many others, the Lycosa warrants us in entertaining a doubt. End of chapter.